0: Love Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 146 of Thyroid Nation Radio Live Talk Show and Podcast, brought to you by Just Thrive Probiotic. I'm Tiffany Milanich. and I'm Mary Showman,
1: and we'll be your and hosts for today.
0: Hi, Mary. How are you?
1: I'm fine. <laughs> Tiffany, how are you?
0: Very good, thank you Mary is filling in for Dana this morning Um, She has had some family tragedies So please be sure to lift her up in prayer and love and light And hopefully we will see her back next week But for this week, we're super, super excited to have Mary with us And today we are talking with clinical researcher Best-selling author and functional medical practitioner Dr. Michael Or Rucio, we're not sure. Can't wait to get that pronunciation correct. About SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and thyroid disorders. Uh, we're very excited to have
1: uh, the doctor on to tell us more about SIBO. And uh, one thing that uh, we want to remind you all of is that uh, we would love you to check out Thyroid Refresh, uh, which is at thyroidrefresh.com. Uh, the Thyroid30 app is coming soon, so we've got exciting news, so stay tuned by following us over at ThyroidRefresh.com, and there's lots of new articles and information up at the site, so we encourage you to check it out and join us uh, if you want to really learn how to thrive and live with thyroid issues and really heal yourself on a, on a mind, body, and spiritual level.
0: It's pretty cool. And you are highly featured in Thyroid Refresh, right, Mary? Lots of articles and stuff yes. from you, which is very cool. Uh, yes, I'm excited
1: to be uh, the thyroid uh, patient expert. And I've got a lot of different articles, informational pieces, and some background. And so if you want to learn about, thyroid disease, we've got pretty much every aspect of it covered up at the site, so start reading, people.
0: Yeah, it's very cool, very cool. Okay, also, make sure to check out ThriveProbiotic.com. That is the sponsor for the show. We're so excited that they are sponsoring us, and spore-based. Very unique, verified to survive gastric acid, of course, gluten, dairy, sugar-free, non-GMO, the mandatory minimums for any probiotic, and proven to reduce endotoxins, triglycerides, and symptoms of leaky gut. And it looks like he is already with us, so let's get this thyroid nation thriving with no further ado. Good morning. Is it Dr. Ruscio?
2: It's pronounced Ruscio. Ruscio.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Ru- Ru- it Thank looks, you so it much. looks
2: like Ruscio, but, but it's pronounced Ruscio. Yeah, good morning. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you so much. I understand it was quite the journey to get you on, the, the scheduling and everything bouncing back and forth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and we're
2: well, so happy I'm, you're here with the, us today. I'm in, the, I, I'm in the clinic on Wednesdays, and uh, so it, it makes it really challenging ah. We had to wait a while until we had an opening in the morning, um, but here we are.
0: And here we are. Well, we're so happy that you have made it with us here today and uh, so excited for all your patients that are lined up with you in the clinic today. All right. Yeah. Well, we always love to hear, because many practitioners have their own story, their own journey that led them to this place. So do you mind uh, sharing with us about that?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, my journey went back to, when I was in college and I was on the pre-med track and I was fairly intent on going into conventional medicine at that point. But as I'm sure other guests have shared, sometimes life experiences steer you in a slightly different path and I was no exception. I started having, you know, from being an otherwise very healthy at this point, 23 year old, who was also a college athlete, I started having very debilitating insomnia, and if anyone suffered with insomnia, they know that, you know, one night of poor sleep is, is bad, but a couple of weeks of that strung together is just crushing. Oh my and God. it's a very, very debilitating insomnia where I would uh, wake up at three o'clock in the morning, not be able to fall back to sleep unless I went to the local gas station and bought a candy bar and ate some chocolate. Um, and in the voice inside my head is saying, what are you doing? But my biology just was, was kind of out of control. Uh, I was fatigued during the day. I had brain fog, depression, uh, was feeling kind of cold. Noticed my hair was thinning. And of course this sounds very much like a constellation of symptoms that are associated with hypothyroid. And so that was one of the Mm -hmm. things that I thought I had. And, um, I proceeded to see a few conventional doctors, all of their workups came back negative. And while I think they were wrong here that we see. And so that put me in a very precarious situation where I started to search and I found alternative medicine and, and really had my eyes more widely open to the wonderful field of integrative, functional, natural, alternative medicine, whatever term you want to use. And I found a doctor who thought I had an intestinal parasite. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy is crazy. I I didn't go to Mexico. I didn't get food poisoning. I have no digestive symptoms. And so I actually didn't follow his advice and and perform any testing. I, I instead went out and I did all this self research and diagnosing. I thought I had adrenal fatigue. So I did the adrenal support supplements. I thought I had poor thyroid conversion. So I did the thyroid conversion support. I thought I had heavy metal toxicity. So I did the detox protocols and nothing really helped. And after a number of months, I said, okay, I need to, spend that 300 ish dollars And being a college student, $300 felt like a million dollars to me, but I figured I don't have anything to lose at this point. And I came back with an intestinal parasite, an amoeba actually. And it was treating that infection that was the only treatment that allowed me to really see a lasting improvement in my symptoms. And it taught me a very valuable lesson, which is someone can have, in this case, salient to this audience, hypothyroid-like symptoms they're actually not being driven by the thyroid at all. Uh, Or perhaps you could make an argument that there's some downstream hormone conversion effects, but the the primary cause is not the thyroid, it could be your gut. And it is possible to have a gut problem manifesting as solely non-gut symptoms, fatigue, brain fog, insomnia, joint pain, skin lesions, what have you. Um, And so to give a a little bit more of this context, which I think is important, (laughs) When I, I finished my training in alternative medicine, and even during my training, I found there was a wealth of phenomenally helpful information, but there also seemed to be a fair amount of dogma. Kind of the, the, the rigorous academic examination of proposed tests and, and proposed treatments that kind of appealed to me with my academic background and with my uh, you know, initial appeal In in looking into conventional medicine, was absent there, and and there was many broad claims being made, and and I would scratch my head and say, yeah, you know, are you sure there's any evidence to support this, or have you thought that maybe some of these views are a bit extreme, and uh, some people didn't like that, and and took me a little while to kind of get enough confidence (laughs) in the questions I was asking as a student to really be fervent in some of those questions, Um, but it just so happens that the questions I had, many other people had, in, and That was the inception of of the book I wrote and and the podcast, which has been really well received by the community, and and also some of the research studies that we're performing in our office, which is trying to figure out what are the most effective treatments and philosophies and and thoughts in this wonderful world of alternative medicine, and what things may not be helpful and may actually be damaging to a patient and, and need to be kind of excised from the model. So that's, I guess, the longer version of how I got to where I am today.
0: Well that's very awesome. I have a really Go ahead, Mary, I was gonna say I have a really quick question just to say, did you had you traveled outside the US or were you a big sushi nope. eater? I think there's so many no. Interesting. I've never
2: been outside of the US. At that point in time, gosh, I don't even know if I had really discovered sushi, um I was in, I was at uh, UMass and I don't think sushi had kind of permeated to the culture back, uh, back into Western Massachusetts at that point in time. So no, no weird food, uh, or I shouldn't say sushi is not weird, but no food that would put me at risk and no travel outside of the U.S. So it was very paradoxical. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Dr.
1: Um, Ruscio, it, it's Mary Showman here. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, I guess I have a very basic question because I know a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with the overriding condition that you're talking about. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about SIBO and what it is and why it's become uh, such an issue uh, and something that you have really focused a lot of your uh, professional attention on?
2: Absolutely. And and there's there's maybe a little bit of a preface I should paint, which is, There have been two areas I've been focusing on in my clinical practice. Those are digestive conditions and a secondary focus on thyroid. And what I've been noticing progressively so over the past few years is the better I get with optimizing and repairing someone's gut, someone's digestion, the less we have to really worry about thyroid. And in fact, there are some cases where we do nothing additional for their thyroid. And all of the symptoms that were attributed to the thyroid go away, and in fact, some of these patients actually need less medication. And I'm thinking of one case I, I've shared her case study many times, and we also published it on our website. Laura, who came in on thyroid medication, and you know, she was wondering, "Do I need to do additional testing? Do I need a different form of the hormone?" And I said, "Well, you know, let's let's keep those things on the table, but let's start with the fundamental in my mind of what I I, I find to be." Most foundational is making sure there's nothing awry in the gut. And it just so happened that she had some gut imbalances that were causing her to malabsorb her medication and altering her conversion of hormones, her T4 to T3, and causing much of her symptoms. So long story short, after optimizing her gut health, she was able to cut her dose. And and this wasn't even per my recommendation. This was per her endocrinologist saying, wow, you don't need as much thyroid hormone. Her, her dose was cut in half of levothyroxine. She had lost 10 pounds as someone who's only one. Her joint pain was gone and her fatigue had improved. And so this, you know, there are many cases like this that have showcased, yes, the thyroid obviously is important. But I think there's a subset of patients who are looking deeper into thyroid for the salute, for the cause of their problem. And they haven't yet realized that the cause of their problem may actually be a problem in their gut um, and and there's a litany of problems that can occur in the gut small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is one of these problems and people may have heard of candida or yeast is an overgrowth of fungus in the gut this is kind of the cousin of a fungal or yeast overgrowth in the gut it's a bacterial overgrowth small intestinal is the region bacterial overgrowth is, is the condition small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and why this is relevant, one one reason why I alluded to a moment ago, is you absorb your thyroid medication in your small intestine. So it's a very relevant point of digestion. Uh, it's not to say you just pop a, a pill, and, and even if it's something like Armour or WP Thyroid or Nature Throid, whatever it is, even if it's the most well-balanced T4, T3, you know, devoid of fillers medication – you can be non-optimally absorbing that if your digestion, especially your small intestinal health is not optimal. Um, So that's one key point. And then another, or uh, two others, it's potentially the small intestinal region is potentially one of the main drivers, if not the main driver of inflammation in the body, which can cause problems with conversion, which can cause symptoms that may look like alteration of, of thyroid hormone levels. And then, Finally, we're seeing some research showing that autoimmunity may improve after improving digestion and a high correlation between autoimmunity and um, thyroid autoimmunity specifically in conditions of the gastrointestinal tract and, and partially, most namely, the small intestines. Um, so, I you know, it's kind of a broad lead in, but the... the the background on the canvas I'm trying to paint here is unfortunately sometimes people go deeper in the thyroid and uh, you know they're, they're most in need of rectifying a problem in the gut that's causing their thyroid-like symptoms. And that's, that's my one goal in the conversation today is just to help people realize that while yes, the thyroid is important and you wanna have competent care and advice there, if you're floundering, you may be able to get to your goal by making a lateral move looking at your gut optimizing some factors there, and that may get you over the symptoms that you're floundering with.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And uh, we know, you know, as you said, we know that uh, a a substantial percentage of autoimmunity can be tripped or triggered by uh, gut issues, leaky gut, inflammation in the gut, uh, dysbiosis. And uh, so what you're really uh, asking us to look at is is the the role that SIBO and the small intestine can play in this overall picture, and I think it's important for uh, people with thyroid issues to realize that this could be the culprit behind why they're still not feeling well despite being treated uh, for their thyroid condition.
2: Exactly, exactly, and and sometimes it's a little bit uh, you know perhaps counterintuitive where people are thinking that the thyroid is the problem and. It may be part of the problem, but the question is, what is the cause of that problem? And as you're alluding to, in some cases, the cause of the problem may be the gut, and, and the gut is kicking out inflammation, that inflammation is, is then you have the autoimmune tie-in, or it may, be, it may be, in some cases, just a issue of inadequate absorption. And someone may just be floundering with, ah, why can't I get my dose right? Well. It's right. it's you know because you keep having these cycles of inflammation in your gut where you're malabsorbing everything that you eat, including things that you ingest, like your thyroid hormone. Um, and I understand it can be frustrating because sometimes you're trying to pin the tail on the donkey with your with your dose. Um, but you know, I, I, again, sometimes it, it, the the thyroid hormones may not be optimal. But again, the the cause may be a problem in your gut.
0: You know, and I think that's that is a paramount failure in conventional medicine is that the gut doesn't get addressed before medication gets involved. I mean, like you said, they just go straight for the thyroid, and you know, don't take into consideration other factors, particularly the gut. I mean, as a practitioner in thyroid issues, you know, even with Hashimoto's or without, what is the percentage that you see with with SIBO? Is there is there a a good percentage well, that you can throw uh, out there? So
2: here's a very interesting finding. There was recently a analysis done of about 1,800 patients, 1,809 patients. And this group of researchers wanted to see what the other uh, co-accompanying factors with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth were. And they were saying, well, let's look at things that are known to associate to SIBO, like use of acid-lowering medications, like your, your PPIs, your, your, you know, your Nexiums, and your Prilosex. Let's look at immunosuppressive drug use. Let's look at prior intestinal surgery, All right, Let's look at these things. And, and so they were thinking they were gonna find a high correlation there. They found the two highest corollaries to SIBO were either being hypothyroid or being on thyroid medication. So there's definitely a wow. strong connection between the two, absolutely.
0: So we're going to go with a healthy 98% on that one. And the really sad part <laughs> about that is that in conventional medicine, even for those patients that, you know, demand, you know, or or politely demand, uh, you know, even say, for example, a hemocult, which would be, you know, it has to be a comprehensive hemocult to even pick up those things from what I understand. Would that be a fair statement?
2: Um, potentially. What is your uh, favorite not...
0: testing? Let's, let's say that. What is your favorite testing to be able to identify SIBO?
2: Well, so it's a little bit of a Pandora's box. That you're not that easy. Because, um, <laughs> but it's, it, well, the, the, the question may be partially fundamentally flawed. And I, and I think it's actually a failure of, the alternative healthcare system, which places this very high value on testing. And there are certainly cases and conditions specifically where testing is very helpful and very much so needed. But there are many areas where the promise of, Hey, this test will tell you what's wrong with you. And the delivery on that promise are very, very disparate from one another. And and unfortunately many patients learn this the hard way where they hear Expert X Y Z talk about lab test A B C, and they spend you know three four five six hundred dollars perform the treatment that's recommended based upon the test results and notice they feel no better. And and yeah, so with the no. gut this yeah right right and so with the gut this definitely occurs. Um, now I'll, I'll answer the question specifically what's the best test for SIBO in, in just a second but you know there, there's an important piece of information that kind of undergirds this conversation, which is we can only test for a small slice of the imbalances that occur in the gut. And so just using arbitrary, let's say we can only test for one fourth of the imbalances that occur in the gut, because there are other things that we know happen, but we can only assess these things via an endoscopy or, or invasive testing that's not available in clinical practice. So if our testing, again, just using arbitrary numbers here, can only provide one-fourth of the information of what's happening in the gut. If you then craft a treatment plan based upon one-fourth of what's happening in your system, what's the likelihood that that treatment plan is going to be high? It's not very good. And and so the gut is this complex ecosystem of life. And again, we can only test a slice of it. So what I recommend and what I lay out in Healthy Gut, Healthy You is a process that's driven by one's symptoms and one's response. We had this complex ecosystem <laughs> okay. and I'm um, go ahead. Sorry. Uh,
1: uh, well, I, so what I, what I was going to ask Dr. Ruscio is, I mean, I know that, for example, with um, sensitivity to gluten, uh, you know, there's a variety of tests that people can go through, but a lot of practitioners are essentially telling thyroid patients and people with autoimmune disease, you know, it, it's not it, it's not a bad idea to just assume that you have some degree of sensitivity or problem with it because following a gluten free, really healthy, clean diet is going to clean up any of those issues, first of all, but it's also just healthy in general, reduces inflammation, and it's right. good for Regardless. disease prevention on any standpoint. So, are, is that essentially what you're saying? Is that the prevalence of SIBO and other intestinal issues is probably so high? with thyroid and autoimmune patients, that it's pretty safe to say that we should be following a really uh, careful and healthy approach to eating that, that would address those issues, but also it's going to be good for our overall health?
2: Uh, in a way, yes, but it, but it's not that specific. I, I wouldn't say that SIBO is, is that common where everyone should assume that they have SIBO, but... I would say that if someone's taken some basic steps to improve their health and they're not responding, I would then undergo an approach to try to optimize your gut health and and honoring the fact that your gut is an ecosystem and not reducing it down to just SIBO or just H. pylori. And that's that's the process I try to bring to people in the book, which is let's present some different stimuli to your gut see how you respond, and if it's the right maneuver for the host, then your health will improve. And this is where we reconcile, why do some people report they feel better high-carb and other people report they feel better low-carb? Well, it's because no two ecosystems are exactly the same. Some gut ecosystems may be better on a lower-carb approach. Some gut ecosystems may be better in a higher-carb approach. And we follow that through to help people find the best diet for them, the best probiotic for them, um, and and so SIBO could be part of it, but it's it's important not to reduce this down to just SIBO because then all you do is follow the SIBO diet guides and the SIBO probiotic guides, but you know you right. you may just be like someone who falls thyroid. outside of that, right?
0: And you miss the elephant in the room, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Now, when it, when people think of SIBO, they automatically think of antibiotics, and I don't I don't want to derail your original uh, thing about testing and miss what you know whether it be yes or no on testing and what your favorite one is. But it sounds like you're almost saying it's better to get the book and try these things that you lay out to see whether antibiotics may or may not be needed or whether, you know, I'd, I'd also like to know how you feel about intermittent fasting. If you withhold, uh, you know, stimuli to the gut, if the gut has that ability to reset itself like they're saying, would that automatically you know, uh, eliminate SIBO or have that potential or are antibiotics always needed in cases
2: of SIBO? Sure. Good, good question. So really quickly, I guess on, on the testing piece, the best method of assessment for SIBO is a breath test. There's a lactulose based breath test. There's a glucose based breath test. There's debate as to which one is better. I think you can make a case for either one and the, the high level evidence I think supports that. Um, and here, the next part of your question: Do people need to test that? I don't. I really don't think so. And 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 part of the reason for that is because again, there there's many things Everybody's occurring different. that you you yeah. may not be able to pick up. And so sometimes, unfortunately, what happens is people make all of their treatment decisions based upon the one fourth of the data that they have from the test. And they're missing other factors and so they keep beating their head against the wall doing something that's clearly not working for them but the test told them to and so they fall into this nasty kind of cycle Um, regarding antibiotics so you know you can use antibiotics or herbal antimicrobials but you this is something that many people won't need you can start with diet and Fasting, and in fact, one of the first things we have people do is a short modified liquid fast as kind of a gut reset. And then we have them go into some trials with different dietary approaches to find what diet works best for them. So fasting can be very helpful. Yes. Some people, though, especially if they're burnt out, and you know the syndrome I'm talking about, not sleeping well, fatigued, stressed out, potentially overworked, underslept, then with these people, you may have to be a bit more cautious with fasting. And that's, it's not hard to adjudicate. You just have them try a fast. And if they have worse brain fog, worse fatigue, they're hangry, they don't want to kill their husband or you know, they, they throw a fit at some point. Uh, okay That healthy stressor of fasting was too much stress for that system. And so it's not a good maneuver at, at this point in time. But it's, it's worth running that experiment because it can be very helpful. So we want to try to incorporate intermittent fasting uh, in addition to trying to find the right diet for some people. And the, the thing that's often left out of this equation when we're talking about, okay, we're improving our diet, trying to eradicate SIBO or the digestive symptoms like gas, bloating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation that we think are attributable to SIBO. And we're not seeing the response from diet that we want. Do we now go to vaccine? Do we now go to an antibiotic? Or do, do, do we now even go to a herbal antimicrobial protocol? Well, the thing that's often missed here is probiotics actually function as antibacterial and antifungal and antiparasitic agents. And we've published three studies where, um, or case studies on our website where patients had documented SIBO and or candida on their testing that we never even needed to treat because they responded 100% to the probiotics that we had used with them prior to that. And unfortunately also, there are some in the SIBO community who don't feel that probiotics are a good idea for SIBO. And that is absolutely counter to what the scientific evidence says. And this is what the strong majority of the scientific evidence says. Now, does that mean that a probiotic is going to help everyone? No. Some people will have a negative reaction to probiotics, but it is the minority. And so it would, be a, it would be a real travesty to jump to an antibiotic or an herbal antimicrobial without first trying a well-formulated probiotic cocktail. If that still doesn't work, then we can escalate people further yet still to either herbal antimicrobials or pharmaceutical antibiotics. I prefer the herbals because the herbals, for example, an oregano oil or oregano pearl Will have antibacterial, mm-hmm. antifungal, and antiparasitic effects all in one, where you'd need two to three prescriptions to have that same kind of impact. So the herbs may be right. able to act against things that you can't even see. Uh, I'm open to either. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and this is the way at the end of the book we try to codify everything into a stepwise approach. We don't go right to antibiotics or herbal antimicrobials. We start with diet, and then we see how you do there. We potentially escalate to probiotics, and then we potentially escalate further, and we account for someone's symptoms all along the way, using their response to guide our decision-making.
1: Dr. Ruscio, um, we have a pretty informed uh, listenership, but for those people who may not be familiar with the benefits of probiotics and what probiotics are and what they do, can you give us just a little – uh, primer on on the probiotic benefit uh, for any kind of intestinal imbalances?
2: Sure. And and some of the exciting uh, observations about probiotics is we're now even seeing that probiotics can help with skin conditions. Probiotics can help with anxiety and depression. And this is because we have this gut connection to many other systems of the body. And so it, it makes sense. a intervention like a probiotic that improves the gut could then improve these other connecting systems of the body. But a a probiotic is essentially healthy bacteria that that has a beneficial impact on the host. Most probiotics actually don't colonize you. That's a bit of a misnomer, but they're, they're transient passers by most of them that can fight and, and, and clean out overgrowth of bacteria, fungus, parasites. They can also help reduce inflammation. They can help to heal, the barrier of the gut or reduced leaky gut. Um, And they can also even help people have their healthy bacteria return back to normal after perturbations from antibiotics. So there's there's many benefits. Some evidence is showing that probiotics may help with lowering cholesterol. There's a slight impact on blood pressure. Um, There's beneficial impact for inflammatory bowel disease, for irritable bowel syndrome, of course, uh, for symptoms like gas, bloating, constipation, and diarrhea. We have a number of clinical trials showing benefit. Uh, So probiotics are are very helpful. The probiotic landscape can be confusing to the consumer because there are hundreds of products. And I talk about in the book... different types. Right, and we can organize most probiotics into three categories. And then, instead of just trying product after product after product, try a category one formula. There's a lot of them out there, but I'm going to try one of these Category 1 formulas and see how I respond and learn if a Category 1 probiotic is a good move for me or not. And and Category 1 is a mixture of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains. So on the ingredient label, you'll see lactobacillus, acidophilus, or lactobacillus, whatever, and bifidobacterium, whatever. And you'll see a number of strains that are lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. That's Category 1. Category 2 is a healthy type of fungus known as Saccharomyces boulardii. And you'll see Saccharomyces boulardii on the label. And then category three are known as spore forming or soil-based probiotics. And these often are termed or or, um, bacillus species. So it may be Bacillus clausii or Bacillus lichenformis or Bacillus subtilis. And you can organize pretty much all probiotics with a few exceptions, but into this category one, two, or three. And again, why that's relevant is because someone may try five different probiotics, all with different names, right? Lacto-Cure, uh, Bifido 5 Probiotic-7. And they may not realize that they're trying different iterations of the same category. And and so it, you know, that helps to kind of consolidate the landscape and, and help you determine you know, what probiotic will work well for your system and, and what one may not. Is uh, that, that's very yeah very well put. we
0: often
1: yes, absolutely we're often told that um it's always best to get our nutrients minerals, et cetera from foods, and you know there obviously are a lot of probiotic rich foods is that enough to double down on the miso and sauerkraut and kimchi and kombucha and all of the other foods that are higher and yogurt uh that are higher in probiotics, or do we really need? to look at supplementation.
2: I think from a, a long-term approach, obtaining your probiotics from food is is a good idea. But w- what gets challenging is when someone is starting on their healing journey, they may be sensitive to certain foods. They may be sensitive to histamine. They may be sensitive to FODMAPs. They may be sensitive to some of the Brassica families, oftentimes which are, you know, um, in your ferments. And it may become more challenging to clinically obtain the dose of the probiotic that you want consistently when you're obtaining them from food in the initial healing phases. So I like to use, I like to reduce the variables as much as possible when we're, when we're trying to figure out what works for someone so we can take food out of the equation and we can look at just the probiotic and the probiotic supplement with a consistent dose with a targeted dose, get someone healed and healthy and then we try to wean people off of the supplements at the tail end of the book protocol, find a minimal effective dose, and then transition into the broadest diet possible, which would include fermented foods as a food source of probiotics in the long term. Well,
1: that makes sense. Um, now, one of the things that you talk about uh, at your site and your blog and in the book is the the link to vitamin D deficiency. And we know that that's certainly a factor for A lot of people with autoimmune disease and they found higher rates of vitamin D deficiency in thyroid patients and Hashimoto's and Graves' disease uh, on the thyroid front. Can you address the link between vitamin D deficiency and SIBO and other intestinal inflammatory issues?
2: Mm, Good question. And, you know, we're... We're only, I think, scratching the surface or beginning to scratch the surface here with some of the research that's being done. There's been at least one trial, one I know specifically, that showed supplementation with vitamin D helped to improve IBS symptoms. So gas, bloating, abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea. IBS was improved after vitamin D supplementation. There was recently one or two papers published showing that vitamin D supplementation appears to help improve the health of the entire colony of bacteria in the gut or the entire entire ecosystem and the researchers are postulating that it's likely because vitamin D has a immunoregulatory effect and likely helps to heal the lining of the gut and so if you have a healthy barrier then you likely have healthier bacteria that live at that barrier if if there's this inflamed leaky barrier gonna be hard to have a healthy life as a bacteria there Uh, but if you have a healthy barrier then it's it's easier to see the growth and and encourage the growth of healthy bacteria Um, but there's there's another component of this which I think is, is important to mention which is essentially showing you cannot obtain the same health benefits from vitamin D supplementation that you can obtain from time in the Sun And so sun exposure does confer health benefits that you cannot obtain just by popping a vitamin D supplement. And that's very important to mention. So we should be encouraging people to obtain regular uh, doses of sun exposure, because again, there's been a number of of, uh, morbidities that have been tracked. Some improve from vitamin D supplementation, but some don't and only improve after um, obtaining time in the sun. Uh, And so that also gives you an excuse, hopefully, to get outside into nature, uh, which has also been shown to be therapeutic. And and people who live near either green zones or blue zones, respectively, that would be a forest or an ocean, tend to have a lower, what's known as all-cause mortality or death from any cause. So there's something therapeutic about nature. Part of that is probably sun uh vitamin D is very important but we also want to make sure that we're using vitamin D truly as a supplement and and not as our only way of obtaining vitamin D and and trying to make our predominant source of sun exposure when and when it, you're it does testing
0: though so. go ahead mary
1: oh i was just going to say do you have an optimal level on uh, testing for vitamin D because I know the range typically runs from 30 to 100 is the normal range, and a lot of doctors will tell you, oh, if your vitamin D is 32, you're fine, but a lot of functional uh, and integrative uh, experts believe that that level should be much higher. I was wondering if you had a thought about where you like to see uh, people's vitamin D levels.
2: There was one analysis that looked at, hunter gatherers and found that their vitamin D was about 45. Uh, And and so I don't think we know the answer to that question completely. Um, But I I don't agree with much of the field that we have to drive your vitamin D very high. I I think you could for, for some select cases of non-responsive autoimmunity experiment with trying to get someone into levels of 60, 70, maybe 80. I think there's some documentation that could support that, but, um, what you see in many of the studies looking at vitamin D uh, for thyroid autoimmunity specifically is it doesn't take a, a whopping dose to see an improvement in the thyroid autoimmunity. Um, and then there have been one or two studies that have shown that even with a reasonable dose of vitamin D, there was no response in thyroid autoimmunity. So. You know, sometimes I think we paint these things as, as panaceas, meaning, oh, you know, if, if I didn't respond to somebody, maybe I've got to take more. If I didn't respond to more, I've got to take even more. And and I don't generally find that to be true. If if a therapeutic option is going to help someone, usually a, a moderate dose will show you some effect, and then I would just ride that treatment until you see a plateau in the effect, and then try to find the minimal effective dose. So for for vitamin D specifically. I think being around 40 to 50 is probably a good sweet spot, and there have been a, a few others. I believe Michael who is who literally discovered 25 hydroxyvitamin D, recommends that same in the range of 40 to 50, um, and and potentially a little bit higher if someone has a non-responsive autoimmune condition. But that and this this kind of transitions us into TPO antibodies and what healthy levels of TPO antibodies are, and I have some thoughts that I think are perhaps a bit controversial there but but important to share and, and you know, I'm happy to transition into that at whatever point you'd like to
0: I would love to hear your thoughts on that really quickly though magnesium plays a fairly important role though with vitamin D correct so if someone's magnesium deficient and yet they're taking high doses of vitamin D that can be somewhat problematic would that be fair to say?
2: I believe that to be fair I haven't seen anything published showing a a negative interaction between vitamin D and magnesium although I haven't looked Um, But I I think this is why I recommend people try to get most of their vitamin D through sun exposure and only are taking a small amount of vitamin D because we, we sometimes assume that just because it's a vitamin, it has no negative consequence, but high doses of just one vitamin in the long term does run the risk of creating other imbalances as a secondary effect. So I try to really proceed cautiously. Uh, and not make the assumption that just because it's natural, it has no potential I love that. negative side effects. And it know?
0: doesn't take much, correct? I mean, you only need about, what, 15? Isn't it ridiculously taking about 50,000 IUs in 15 minutes of not even direct sun exposure? It can just be sitting outside and having your morning beverage or whatever in the shade, and you'll still intake quite a bit of vitamin D. Isn't that correct? It's It's super simple.
2: Yeah, it's not hard. I mean, you know, most people, anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, of unprotected direct sun exposure. In the middle of the day is probably the best time to do this if you can, because you need to have enough heat from the sun to convert the cholesterol in the skin into vitamin D. <clears throat> but yes, it, it doesn't take a whopping amount. And, and you know, unfortunately what happens sometimes is the dermatology community will, would have you believe that any sun exposure is bad. And, and I always, you know, it's always disheartening when I see someone walking around town on a sunny day and they're holding like a piece of paper over their face because they don't want the sun to touch them as if they're like a vampire. And <laughs> any sun exposure is going to cause them to wilt away. Now we don't want to go Jersey shore in <laughs> the other direction and, and be excessive. Uh, and and, there's, and there's, there's clearly this this inverted U with sun exposure, meaning avoiding the sun or not getting any sun exposure is bad for your health. Getting far too much sun exposure is also bad for your health, but there's this, very meaty part of the inverted U where we see people improve their health with consistent, so, you know, uh, daily or weekly, small bouts of exposure in the sun. And for, and that varies based upon skin type, the darker your skin, the longer you'll need. Um, And we also lay out some specific guidelines for people in the book. If they're saying, well, you know, how much, how long, how often, uh, we lay out some guidelines, but as a general rule of thumb anywhere, between two to maybe five days a week, just roughly speaking, obtaining anywhere from about 10 to 30 minutes in direct sun exposure seems to be a reasonable uh, recommendation.
0: Love that. That's so reasonable and doable.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and, you'll, and it's good for your, I mean, you know, th- I should mention that regular uh, responsible sun exposure has been shown to reduce malignant melanoma And the data here are a little bit less clear, but appears to also reduce non-malignant melanoma like your squamous cell carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas. So, um, you know, there's a small, small subset of people who are exquisitely sensitive to the sun and they probably have a strong family history of of skin cancers. Um, So they'll want to, they're the outlier and we'll want to be careful. But for the majority of people, paradoxically, uh, regular responsible Exposure is actually protective against skin cancer.
1: Well, that makes sense. I, I totally uh, to agree. Me. Yeah. Yeah. If it's helping the immune system function more effectively, that means that it's helping to go in and scavenge for uh, cancer and help prevent the development of skin cancer, much like it's going to help prevent the development of other cancers as well. Exactly. Yep. Uh, one thing we have not really touched upon, and we, we've, we've you've mentioned it, Dr. Ruscio, but uh, let's go back to the issue of diet because you said that really is one of the foundational issues in addressing SIBO and intestinal inflammation. And is there a particular diet? I know we're, we're sort of in the one size doesn't fit all area here, so it's not like I'm imagining you're going to hand us a food list and say, here's what to eat, here's what not to eat. But are there some general guidelines at, that uh, that you talk about uh, as far as uh, things that we need to start looking at to reduce inflammation and, in particular, to address uh, some of the, the SIBO-related issues from a dietary yes. standpoint?
2: Yep, yep, 100%. And, and the good news is is that when you organize the different lists of foods that could be problematic for people into a couple different diets, you can navigate or you can, you can perform an initial trial on a diet and, and test if that diet is going to be the right diet for you or not. And, and one of the really nice things is for most diets, it only takes about two weeks to get an initial sense of if this is the right diet for you or not. So if you hear two or three different diets and you say, wow, is this going to be three months on each diet? Nope. For most people, two weeks, reevaluate. If you're not clearly improving, then we move you to the next diet. And, and that way you can run through your your dietary experimentation phase literally in a month and a half. It's it's not necessarily uh, that that difficult um meal frequency is one we talked about fasting so fasting and meal frequency that's not necessarily the foods that you eat but it's the it's the frequency with how often you eat so that's that's one thing to consider and we provide some guidelines for that but you want to figure out if you're someone that does better with frequent meals or less frequent meals all right so you know a little bit of fasting or someone who needs to kind of avoid fasting regarding diets specifically there's two good starting points one is a paleo diet and this is not to say you have to um sometimes the paleo diet is depicted as being and you can skew the macros in the paleo diet to to potentially be a little bit lower in protein and in higher in vegetables and fruits that's totally fine the point is to reduce common inflammatory foods uh grains being one dairy being another soy being another and processed foods being uh, yet another yet still so the paleo diet's one place to start but not everyone responds optimally to a paleo diet. And for some people, what's more important is that they reduce foods that feed bacteria in your gut. And this is known as a low FODMAP diet. And the low FODMAP diet reduces foods that are paradoxically labeled as healthy oftentimes, like broccoli, asparagus, cauliflower, avocado. And it's not to say these foods are unhealthy, but for a gut that has too much bacteria, that diet is helpful. The low FODMAP diet is helpful because it reduces these foods, these seemingly healthy foods, that feed intestinal bacteria. Now, there's derivations one can make from there, but those are, you know, two good starting points. And in terms of which one is better for an individual, you know, you can really start with either one. Uh, I would say the more someone has predominantly digestive symptoms, they may want to start with the low FODMAP. Um, But if there's kind of a mix of of digestive and non-digestive symptoms, then they may want to start with a paleo.
0: Interesting. I'm I'm having a a flower field moment here going back and forth because there are some people that, that really have some trouble removing the carbohydrates, like you mentioned, it's very, you know, can be very problematic and and even sulfur. I know you talk a little bit about sulfur as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you asked that question because, um, you know, I, I have a little bit of a different of, of a position on grains and gluten than, than I think many do when commenting on thyroid. And I, I've actually become much more open to grains in the diet and even some gluten. And part of this is because, I'm discovering that gluten isn't the primary dietary problem for all people. And I think that's actually a very reasonable statement. You know, I think it's, it's unreasonable to assume that any one food is a problem for 100% of a population. So if you, if you buy that premise, then what, what, what do we then start thinking about? Well, perhaps someone has a problem with dairy and with FODMAPs. And they're also a little bit sulfur sensitive, meaning, uh, you know, they're they're very sensitive to vegetables. And there are some people that notice that vegetables really bloat them or, or flare their system. So if someone doesn't do well with dairy and they don't do well with many vegetables, their plate starts to shrink. And so once you start realizing that there's these different nuances in diet and some people clearly have a problem with, let's say, FODMAPs and high sulfur vegetables, then you have to start looking for places where you can open up their diet. And, and I started allowing people to broaden their diet into grains. And, and I was someone who was is, who is, you know, somewhat staunch, a staunch paleo supporter until I started looking at these patients who were going paleo and not getting any better. And I said, okay, I, I've got to start thinking more open here because this isn't working. And so we'd have some patients introduce grains and some patients even introduce some gluten. And they would actually start feeling a lot better Um, and and this is I think a very defensible position and I just you know if I may quickly just chime in on a study that was published in Italy just recently it was a multi-center prospective analysis where a group of physicians tried to really get a deep understanding for non celiac gluten sensitivity what it looked like what tests may be used what were the co-accompanying symptoms and conditions and in this group of 12,225 patients that were that were assessed and screened diligently, it was found that about 30% of those, I'm sorry, um, of those patients, about 3%, not 30%, 3% were found to have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So that's great. Right? They, they definitively documented that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is something that affects a subset of the population and it can manifest as a wide array of symptoms digestive also dermatological skin reactions rheumatological joint reactions neurological fatigue brain fog depression so they did a great job of documenting that yes this is a legitimate thing and we can say that there are people who don't have celiac who do have a clear problem with gluten but i think the the detail matters which is the three is percent now Estimates, because of the glyphosate in in the U.S., may be a little bit higher. And rightfully so, estimates of non-celiac gluten sensitivity in the United States range from 06 to 6%. Might they be even a little bit higher than 6%? Sure, but that's still relatively low. In this same study, they found that of the 3% who were found to have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, 9% 9% of those, we'll round up, make it easy and say 10, 10% of those had thyroid autoimmunity. And that was actually the most associated autoimmune condition to non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So yes, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, sensitivity is a thing. And yes, thyroid autoimmunity is the most associated. But we should be looking at the, at the prevalence. And, and even if underreported, um, you know, the prevalence is not the majority. So to, to translate those numbers, let's say we had 1,000 people who were assessed for non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Of that 1,000, that would mean that 30 of those people had non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and three of those people had accompanying thyroid autoimmunity. So, you know, it's it's become progressively more difficult for me when looking at the literature, honestly, to say everyone has to be gluten-free. Now, I combine that with the fact that some patients come in very afraid of food, and they are literally withdrawing from social engagement because they've been indoctrinated into thinking they can never have any gluten ever for the rest of their lives, and so their once-a-month girls' night, where they go out and they have a glass of wine and, and eat at a restaurant, is now gone because they are too afraid of the sauce and may you know the, on the food may have gluten, and this actually does patients a great disservice when you when you force them into thinking that they have a dietary problem and you haven't allowed them to go through an elimination and a reintroduction to qualify if they need to, then they're just avoiding the food on blind faith. And when you combine that further, yet still with some people legitimately find they have a problem with another food group like FODMAPs, you make their life unnecessarily difficult when you encumber them with a dietary restriction you haven't qualified is problematic for them. And just one, one quick final point here on this study they found that over 90% of patients who reacted to gluten had a symptomatic reaction within 24 hours. So to say that you could have this silent inflammation from gluten, you now I'm open to it, but the best evidence available tells us that people will have some kind of symptomatic reaction. It might be joint pain, it might be a headache, it might be brain fog within 24 hours. So I think it's, it's, it's tough to make the case that you could have this silent inflammation that's brewing underneath the surface. My thinking has been that if you're eating a food that's actively damaging you, you're likely going to see some kind of symptom. And so for all those reasons, I'm a little bit more open-minded with gluten. Uh, If someone has a problem with gluten, then I'm fully behind them in avoiding it. But I want each individual to discover their level of reactivity to gluten and then practice avoidance in a correspondent fashion.
0: You know, I'm, I'm, if you were standing in front of me, I would hug you right now <laughs> because I'm so glad that you talked about this because there there are other things that can be very problematic and you miss that like, you know, bromide prevalence or yeast problems or pesticide problems from Epstein-Barr or whatever, things like that that can be problematic outside of the gluten. So you miss the elephant in the room if you're focusing primarily on the gluten, I can't tell you how happy i am that you just said that i i wish you a bullhorn in this health community because (laughs) lots of people are miserable and totally hyper focused on on gluten and missing so many other things i would love it if you would for the many that don't understand uh what the fob maps diet is what exactly is that can you define that for the listeners
2: Sure, and and thank you very much. And I have to say that this message has been very well received by the community. Um I think it makes a lot of sense and, and I'm I'm glad that we had this wave of awareness regarding gluten, but I think we've swung a little bit too far the pendulum and now we're kind of resetting back to a more reasonable center. Uh and, and again to your to your earlier point, um some people have a hard time going low carb, right? So if if they're sensitive to starches. I, can, I
0: do. I can tell right, you right so, now, so. I, have, I get very depressed, I can't go potty, I can't sleep, and normally I sleep like a baby, I'm very regular, I'm very even-keeled, I've tried to do the paleo thing, and oh my God, Dr. Ruscio, it's like someone just kill me now. And my husband will say, right. this is not working for you, Tiffany, you cannot, you cannot do this, it's, it's just, mm-hmm. and yet people mm-hmm. tell and me, that... and I can even eat, I can eat certain breads. And my brain is shut off within an hour, like it's awful. And then I could eat other breads and I would be just fine. It was, it was a hit and miss. It was, you know, it wasn't that Mm -hmm. simple.
2: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so if, if someone is sensitive to to vegetables and many people with digestive problems can't eat a ton of vegetables, especially cellulose, and they may be somewhat sensitive to starches, you know, you're going to tell them that they can't have any, especially if you go completely grain free. If you say you can't have any grains and you're reacting to vegetables, they're, they're, again, their plate shrinks. And so for some people, the move of just, you know, hearing it's okay to start experimenting, experimenting with these things makes a huge difference. And, 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 just really quick here, we, we published, or we'll be publishing I think next week, a case study with a gentleman named Randy who was so fatigued. He had a hard time walking up a flight of stairs and he had back pain and insomnia. And I looked at his case and I said, this guy is eating way too restrictive. And so we got him back on some, some grains. And I said, if you are out and you can only have gluten as your grain, because we really need to get your carbs up. I said, have the gluten. I I said, don't make it a staple, right? But if you're between a rock and a hard place, nothing or gluten containing grains have the gluten came back in a month later and he had just got done over the weekend, power washing his deck. His fatigue was completely gone. His back pain was gone. He was sleeping better, and he had gained, I think, 10 pounds, which he desperately needed to. So, yeah, yeah, these these maneuvers can can be key for some people who are struggling. Um, and then regarding FODMAPs, uh, it's it's a it's a bit of a odd list, meaning you wouldn't necessarily um, <laughs> equate all these foods. And I I can't say I have the whole list committed to memory, but I listed a few earlier. Many of the of the brassica family, and cruciferous vegetables are high in FODMAPs. So your broccoli, your cauliflower, your asparagus, also avocado, Uh, apples are high in FODMAPs. Um, uh, So, I mean, those those are just a few off off the top of my head. But what's challenging is some of these foods are are really staples for people. Uh, And I think the reason why some people don't do well on a paleo approach is they can't process all this. And so this is where you know the FODMAP can be helpful. And you also have to be careful when you're looking at low FODMAP because some of the lists on the internet are the Paleo diet combined with the low FODMAP diet. And so I talk about that in the book, and I say if you've done Paleo and you feel well on it, but not fully well, we can give you the combination Paleo and low FODMAP. But if not, uh, and Dana sounds like you, you may fall in this category, we can have you go into the standard low FODMAP. And so we provide a food list for each. So be careful with where you get the food lists. Um, We have some of those available through my book uh, so you can, you know, get the correct food list. Um, But, you know, in short, many vegetables and some fruits are high in FODMAPs, and it's it's paradoxical because we're told that fruits and vegetables are so healthy for you. But, again, that's not the case for everyone.
1: That's absolutely (sighs) fascinating, Um, and it certainly explains some things. I
0: mean, it's interesting because, Tiffany, you were saying that you don't do well on very low carb, right? Yeah, no, I can't, and I can't. Sulfur foods are—they yeah. kill me. It's instant. It's so an- <laughs> awful. And and I'm Neoply lived on lean proteins
1: and vegetables. I I have energy. I feel she great. Thrives. I you know, it's just it's 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 the perfect combination for me. So I think the message is always one size does not fit all, and we're each right. uh, having physiology, and we need to address that. Uh, Dr. Ruscio, I want to make sure that we go back to something that you said that I am very intrigued by, which is that you have a uh, novel and, in in fact, maybe controversial. Uh, position on the issue of thyroid antibodies. And um, it's a subject that's certainly of interest to me uh, as somebody who's doing a lot of, uh, you know, studying on thyroid and have thyroid autoimmune disease myself. So I wondered if you could share a little bit more about your thoughts on that.
2: Yes, yes. Um, and, and I'm happy that we are going to be able to sneak this in. So th- the first thing that I observed was. Patients would come in who, who weren't feeling well, and oftentimes their TPO anti were very high 700, 900, 1100, 1200. And wow. then we, we, we took steps to get them healthy, and their symptoms globally improved, and then their antibodies came down. But they oftentimes didn't go to normal, they oftentimes hovered in 100, 200, 300, 400. Uh, yet the person was perfectly healthy. And so I'm one not to just blindly follow the, you know, the dogma, or I shouldn't say dogma, but the recommendations in the field. And I, I question things because I've learned that oftentimes we have these recommendations that haven't been fully questioned, and people just keep recapitulating them and not questioning them. And so I started to feel like the TPO antibodies were not incredibly representative of someone's health, uh, meaning, you know, if they were positive, "quote unquote" positive, but in a low range on the positive spectrum, that might actually be okay. And it turns out, as I started looking into this, we don't have a lot of data here. But from the some of the studies that have been done, I think one could reasonably conclude that a TPO antibody between 100 and about 300 could be considered a clinical win, especially if the person is generally healthy. And and why I think that's important is because I've seen patients who are are now otherwise healthy, yet they are still in fear of their autoimmune condition because they now have a, a TPO antibody hovering at 225. And it just so happens that some of the literature that's been published that has tracked patients and tried to associate levels of TPO antibodies as a predictor of risk of developing hypothyroidism in the future has found 500 seems to be the cutoff point for people who are above 500 had a moderate risk of progression to hypothyroidism, and people who are below 500 had a minimal risk. Now, there's one other component here that should be brought into the equation, which is some data has shown that people with lower levels, around 200 to 300, have impaired mood and and sense of well-being. And so, uh, you know, I, I think there's something there to, to consider, but um, we also know, for example, that selenium, at least some data has shown selenium, may improve one's sense of subjective well-being, uh, as could something like a probiotic. So it, it's, it's not to say that because someone has a low level of thyroid antibodies that may be associated with somewhat depressed well-being, that that means that their thyroid gland is actively being damaged. And, and so, again, why this is important is because if someone has taken some steps to improve their health and their antibodies have come down to that low range of 100, 200, 300-ish, and they're generally feeling well, then they don't need to pursue any further autoimmune treatments. Now, if their well-being is not optimal, they could con- consider some additional um, tinkering. Um, but it's it's important to mention that the antibodies are not a, a definitive prognosis. In fact, another Trial looked at how many people with elevated antibodies progressed to hypothyroidism, and they essentially found that between 9 to 19 percent of people with somewhat highly elevated TPO antibodies progressed to hypothyroidism. So I think oftentimes these details are left out of the equation where people think, oh my God, I have high TPO, I'm going to become hypothyroid. Well, no, actually, the minority of people with TPO antibodies become hypothyroid. Now, it's not to say we don't want to act and, and we can use all these different interventions to try to bring those antibodies down and, more importantly, globally improve the health of the individual. But we, sh- you know, we shouldn't be beating people over the head with this message that just because you have TPO antibodies, you're guaranteed to be hypothyroid in the future and you have to aggressively act to lower these down to below 35.
0: Now,
1: I, I want to push back on one Other one aspect of that, though, and that's in women of childbearing age, because there are a number there. There, there, I agree.
2: Yep, I I agree with you. So when you're when you're looking at, um, especially women with a history of infertility, then the TPO antibodies and subclinical hypothyroidism are are something that should be pursued more more directly, because there is that correlation to miscarriage and infertility. So I am in complete agreement with you there.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, We wanted to check with you. We are uh, at the end of the hour, and uh, if you had some more time, I know that uh, Tiffany and I could ask you questions all day, but we wanted to give you the option (laughs) to wrap up at this point because we know that you've got a busy schedule and lots of eager patients uh, waiting to meet with you. So um, we just wanted to check in and, and see what kind of time you have. Dr. Ruscio.
2: Yes I'd love to continue the conversation, but unfortunately I've got to zip over to the clinic now um but but thank you again i mean and and I'd be happy to continue this discussion in the future because this is something I'm very passionate about, and i I think patients really uh you know need to get some of this nuance to help if nothing else, help them combat some of the fear that that surrounds some of the overzealous messaging in the in the realm of thyroid um but for today, unfortunately, I've got to zip over to my office
0: We okay. would love to have you back.
1: Absolutely. And can you share, uh, before you uh, head off, can you begin the name of your book and your website and where people can find you and get in touch with
2: you? Absolutely. The name of the book is Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and it's available on Amazon. And my website is drruscio.com, which is spelled D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O dot com. And we have a weekly podcast and video and newsletter over there that people can plug into
1: Wonderful. Well, Wonderful. head on over to com and sign up for uh, Dr. Ruscio's newsletter and listen to his podcast and uh, get his book.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, and we won't we won't keep you any longer. We'll let you get to your patience. We really appreciate you taking the time, and we look forward to having you back.
2: Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye now. I have to admit that is my favorite gut interview period in, you know, almost three years or over three years. Now that's my favorite right there. I can't wait to have him back and talk about more about the thyroid antibodies and all that. Cause mine's like a seesaw. I'm going, you know, uh, Hashimoto and Graves, my Graves titers are over 500. And now right now I'm, you know, 500 on my Graves titers and 200 on my Hashimoto antibodies. So it's, it's I, I agree with him. I think there's a much bigger picture that, that we just don't necessarily always look at. We we think that everything is just so standard, you know? And it's not. It's just not. Well
1: you know, i I mean there there the argument and I've been yelling this for twenty five years is we are patients, we are not lab values. And right, it's right. the same argument we use when a doctor tells us, Oh, your T S H is four point nine nine And the cutoff is five, so you're fine. And you're like, no, I'm not fine. I don't feel well. Right. TSH is right at the edge of abnormal. I've talked with people who feel fine with a little bit elevated TSH or whose antibodies are higher. And a lot of it has to do with whether or not you're feeling well. I mean, obviously, we want to address serious disease and risk issues, but- uh, you know, I think that he's got a point. Everybody who's got elevated antibodies is not necessarily somebody that needs to be actively and aggressively intervening to try to deal with those antibodies. So it's an interesting uh, idea, and it's it's pretty, it's pretty radical, the integrative and, and holistic view of thyroid, where everybody feels that everything needs to be uh, dealt
0: with. And, and and situations can change in the same person. I mean, for example, when I started out, my antibodies were 300. My TSH was three, and I felt like I was going to die. I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, now, my gosh, some 10 years later, I can't, my TSH can't go below a five, or I feel like I'm flying. You know, there's, you know, different people have different, it's just, it's amazing, and I'm, I think one thing we can all agree on, though, is that the gut, regardless, leaky gut, SIBO, parasites, whatever, has to be a first line of defense in any thyroid consideration. Would that be fair to say, Mary, for you?
1: Absolutely, because, I mean, the gut is our largest immune organ. And, you know, yep. people don't always realize that the, that, the, that the gut is part of the immune system. And, in fact, it is the largest part of the immune system. And if you if your gut is not healthy, then your immune system isn't healthy. So it's step one. In and the medicating foundation.
0: may be problematic absolutely. on top of that Absolutely, without addressing absolutely. that. Yes. Well, this was fabulous. Of course, as always, a very, very, very big thank you to all our listeners. We're so grateful that you tune in. Please, if you get a free moment and you enjoy the show, we'd love it if you left a little review on iTunes for us.
1: And uh, one of the things uh, we wanted to just uh, remind everyone is to check out our, our sister uh, relationship with Thyroid Refresh, uh, which is located at www.thyroidrefresh.com. You can really think of Thyroid Refresh as a living, breathing thyroid lifestyle magazine and resource. Uh, there's a lot of inspiration, information, and support all in one place. that I've written uh, happily and uh, you know, really uh, excited to share on cutting-edge thyroid health issues. There's amazing recipes and instructional cooking videos. You can get access to our incredibly amazing community of thyroid thrivers and really embark on a thyroid wellness adventure. It's revolutionary. So if you want to check it out, go over to www.thyroidrefresh.com.
0: Absolutely. And, of course, if you've missed any of the Thyroid Nation Radio podcasts, super easy to download, listen to them at your leisure, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. A very big thank you as well to thriveprobiotic.com. And most importantly, Dana, Mary and I would like to remind you, and you heard it, you hear it confluently through every single show that we do. We want to remind you that wellness is a journey and takes continual maintenance and individual evaluation. You have your own built in diagnostician. We heard Dr. Ruscio say it many times to listen to your body, try different approaches. We have incredibly intelligent people. But there is no such thing as one-size protocol fitting all for every thyroid patient. It doesn't exist. So please be sure to listen to your own body and be mindful of what it is telling you. This is Tiffany. And this is Mary. Your Thyroid Nation Thrivers, bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united, we heal and we are. Thank you so much, Mary, and much love and light to Dana. We're thinking about you. Have a great week, everybody.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye, Mary. Thank you. Thanks. Take care, honey.
1: You too.